Hello and welcome back to the podcast, a podcast that is still locked down and a pair of podcasters <laughs> who still haven't seen each other now for several weeks. Several weeks, it does feel like that yeah. as well. It's, it, times are strange right now, aren't they? They certainly are, yeah. We've not been, I mean, our campus has been close to us now for, what, a week, I think? Uh, or was it two yeah, weeks? I, I'm, I'm losing track. Me too. Uh, time has become strange. Time feels suspended. I feel suspended <laughs> in time. We should probably describe our circumstances right now. You yes, are currently sat in a car. <laughs> yeah, we're doing this podcast down the line um, because obviously we're not allowed to be in the same place. We are, we are social distancing from one another. Uh, so yes, yes, I am uh, in the car outside my house because everybody in my house is asleep <laughs> it's quite late at night i'm i don't uh, have the luxury of any kind of garage or anything cars are very good to record in because they're very very dead inside they're designed to kind of deaden all the road noise and the engine noise so they're a great space to record in um but I, I am literally parked on the side of the road outside my house i can pick up my wi-fi um from outside the house and yeah it's dark it's cold uh, and some people just walk past but i don't think they saw me <laughs> the lengths that we go to to bring you this podcast i i feel you know i feel we're surpassing ourselves here tom i think this is good yeah it's uh, I, I imagine you're probably you're in your comfortable house are you uh, i am with, i, I yeah. am my, my surroundings are nowhere near as uh as as quirky as yours right now i'm i'm in the uh the tranquility of my study um and uh yeah have no cocker spaniel you'll be pleased to hear uh you know wandering around me because he is tired out after two walks because you know ah. in these self-isolating times we uh we each take the dog on, on different shifts so god love him he's been I walked see. to within an inch of his life <laughs> well i'm just wondering if our recording's going to be interrupted by the police coming past and asking me whether my journey from my front door to my car uh, was essential or not the answer is yes it is essential <laughs> we have podcasts feel like to proper. record <laughs> you might feel like proper journalists then, though, if you get some policeman or woman yeah. <laughs> tapping on your window. Like. Yeah, I'm going to record it all. It's all going out out live. So uh, we are going to bring you our our traditional holiday light edition of uh, blogs, tweets, and stories from the news that we've gathered together. Um, mine certainly are not particularly education related as, as usual we haven't told each other what we've got in advance but i can tell you that mine are pretty far removed from the world of education deliberately so <laughs> well one of mine is education related um and it's quite short uh but the other one is definitely not education related although i'm sure i'll i'll make some tenuous links um but uh yeah it, hopefully you will find them of interest and if not you can always switch us off please don't though just well, stay with no, us if you can st <laughs> stay with us just think of me freezing in this dark car recording this <laughs> yeah that's that's worthwhile you know sticking totally. it out go the long distance for tom go for me so yeah. i'm, go on, I'm gonna i'm gonna start us off aren't we and i'm gonna start off with something work related this is a tweet that uh, came 
came out on a very ominous day actually on the 16th of March 2020 which I'm pretty sure was the day that our poor students were told that they uh, could no longer be uh, going into school on their placements no. but anyway this is it's not related to that this comes from um, a Twitter handle uh, called at RS underscore network which is an abbreviation of research schools network which is a, an England uh, based organization um, I think have uh, lots of connections with um, other organizations that we've talked about on this podcast such as the Education Endowment Foundation. Um, they have tweeted um, a quote from a guest blog on the Education Endowment Foundation's website um, and the quote uh, reads Treating implementation as a process, not an event, and seeking to answer the question, does it work here, is how we believe our school can best improve student outcomes. Um, it sounds quite dry, actually, on our light episode, but so I just thought I'd um, I'd mention why it grabbed me. Um, Tom and I have been, and all of our uh, co-workers, our colleagues at Cardiff Met have been reading a Mary Myatt book um, of late and uh, she talks a lot about doing more with less, spending more time, um, going deeper, allowing teachers more time to think deeply. We've talked about this a lot in relation to Curriculum for Wales and I just re really liked this um, this idea, uh, it, it, the, the blog is speaking to, to senior leaders, um, school leaders mainly, but it just makes a refreshing point um, in the context of evidence-informed practice and schools who are evidence-informed. I just like this idea that, you know, implementation is a slow burn um, and involves a lot of collaboration, discussion, time to get people on board um, and also that that really good question that's quoted in that tweet which is does it work here um, because there are a lot of fads out there and there are a lot of you know really important evidence-based um, strategies areas of focus that are really gaining a lot of momentum um, in education but it just just struck me with this tweet that ah uh, you know amidst sort of some slightly more vitriolic um, tweets out there about, you know, retrieval practice, cognitive science, which, you know, I absolutely uh, acknowledge to be very, very important um, in the world of education. But I just like the idea that, you know, with everything we should be asking, does this work here? And how can we best, you know, integrate this in a way that's going to be right for us and for our kids? This is a theme that's come up more than once, hasn't it? Because we've talked quite a lot about this move towards evidence-informed, research-informed practice in schools. And in general, I, I think a lot of us welcome it, think it's a, a real shot in the arm for the profession. But we've we've said more than once, haven't we? We've said with our friends from Impact Wales, and we also said uh, with uh, Professor David James, it's so tempting for that to become the next management stick for beating people mm. with or the next kind of quick fix or or you know sort of thing that the new broom imposes on everybody when they get appointed to a school and you and you're absolutely right there are no shortcuts with this stuff and there are no black and white cut and dried answers uh, as much as some people might want them to be 
Yeah, absolutely. And and when I when I then sort of drilled down into the blog itself, which is quite a short read actually, there were some some nice reflect refreshing messages to to school leaders um in how they how they grow leadership capacity and how they lead on on change implementation and and you know change culture change mindsets and and one of the big things that they talk about um in this blog or that this um person talks about in this blog i should name him his name's roger higgins director of norwich research school part of the eef the education endowment foundation's research schools network and he talks about um the platform for good school implementation is to create the right leadership environment and to carefully plan for implementation as a process not an event and he talks about um the importance of um senior leadership teams teams working as teams um rather than uh you know as individuals sort of going around policing everything it's it was just refreshing and um for any student teachers out there who have got aspirations for you know senior leadership roles down the line i think there's a lot to be um found by looking into sort of school culture and implementation of of uh, research informed practice that's interesting i think i'm sort of mentally building up a little a little kind of metaphorical draw marked really controversial podcast episodes we should do i know we said when we recorded our christmas one didn't we we were going to really let rip on creativity at some point after a couple of stiff drinks Mm. i think i'm going to add to that draw (laughs) um school leadership culture Mm, yeah yeah he said he says that in this blog actually he says the changes we're making to our leadership habits aren't easy um so you know it's it's just nice it's just nice to hear that um and and i hope that it may be nice for any senior leader listeners out there to um to hear that too and to uh you know to to know that we don't see you as the enemy we see you as very very important leaders of change in school yeah definitely um, i know i make the occasional yeah. uh, kind of spiky comment about senior <laughs> leaders sometimes but uh, but you know that i i always was aware even even when i was perhaps as a as a teacher at the chalk face kind of cursing the latest uh, thing to hit my email inbox that you know they were only being hammered by somebody above them in the same way and I wonder whether perhaps it might be worth just putting out there a open invitation for any senior leader who would like to maybe come on and, and discuss uh, the complexities and the sort of uh, the pros and cons of different ways of being a senior leader with us because I think that could be a really interesting episode. I agree. And there's an offer if ever I heard yeah. one. Well done, Tom. I like that. Okay. Come at us, senior come leaders. Us. Yeah. We really want to speak to you. <laughs> okay. okay. Is um, it my turn now? You're, you're up. You're up next. I'm up. Okay. So I know we always say blogs and I think I've done this before. I ended up with uh, a sort of online newspaper column instead, but it, it's a, it's effectively a bit like a blog, I suppose. Uh, I'm cheating slightly. Okay. Um, this is from a column <laughs> uh, in The Guardian called The Networker, which deals with technology. Uh, And this is an article that came out, it's written by John Norton, and it came out on uh, Saturday, the 28th of March. So just a couple of short days ago. And uh, I'll spare you the the sort of full length of the article. But but the the bit that really grabbed me um, was a, a comment that they were making about Amazon. 
the enormous uh, online giant company Amazon and the role that they've played in this uh, coronavirus pandemic that's hit us all. Uh, And just to kind of quickly give you the, the sort of punchline, I guess, of the article, the last couple of paragraphs, it says that this whole kind of situation with the coronavirus pandemic reveals an important truth about our economies, namely the extent to which Amazon has become so central and so powerful. And uh, he name checks another journalist at this point, Julia Carrie Wong, and says that she's pointed out that Amazon in the US is beginning to behave more like a government than the Trump administration itself. Um, The author likens the hiring by Amazon of 100,000 staff and their $2 an hour pay rise that they've given their staff to a 21st century version of uh, FDR's famous Works Progress Administration um, in in the Great Depression. The company's sudden support for small businesses around its Seattle headquarters so that they might live to serve Amazon another day is, she says, akin to a government stimulus package. And its decision to stop accepting non-essential products from third-party sellers who use its warehouses essentially amounts to government-style market regulation. So the pandemic will radically transform the industrial and commercial landscape of Western societies. Lots of companies, large and small, will go to the wall no matter how fervent government promises of support are. But when the smoke clears and some kind of normality returns, a small number of corporations, ones that have played a central role in keeping things going, will emerge strengthened and more dominant. And chief among them will be Amazon. What we'll then have to come to terms with is that Amazon is becoming part of the critical infrastructure of Western states. So too perhaps a Google and Microsoft. Apple is more like a luxury good, nice but not essential, and the only reason for keeping Facebook is WhatsApp. In which case, one of the big questions to be answered as societies rebuild once the virus has finally been tamed will be a really difficult one. How should Amazon be regulated? And I just found that really interesting because wow. it is absolutely true to to see that Amazon is now becoming so big it is almost like a kind of like a small country or a government or something in itself and those points about some of the things that it's doing over in America it's almost kind of taking the reins of, of certain things that are traditionally the role of governments uh, yeah. and it's just kind of really interesting to think whether this is one of the things that that will come out of this situation a kind of realization that that some of these companies are now I mean, you, you just couldn't imagine being without them, but they have got an enormous, enormous amount of power. And there was, there's been some really quite scary articles yeah. about Amazon. There was a, a really terrifying one about um, Alexa and all of that sort of stuff the other day, which I didn't mm. send you because I know you've got one in your house. Well, I, you know, I was just about to say, before we started this podcast, I asked Alexa to switch on my study lights. Yeah. I'm not going to say it to you now because she'll switch them off if I'm not careful. And <laughs> funnily enough, it's... Um, you know, it's something that my other half and I have been mindful of. Well, since we've been working at home, actually, because you can you can mute Alexa um, and stop her from listening because she does. She's speaking to, speaking about her like she actually exists. Um, it does record. Uh, you can, obviously you can you can you can look at it all. You review it. You can you can delete it all. But yeah. it does transcribe everything that you've said it kind of create it creates micro kind of recordings of things that it thinks you're saying to her um mm. it's bizarre so um yeah and and I'm, I'm kind of ashamed to say that you know i have ordered some books and i am awaiting an amazon delivery right now yeah 
Oh yes, I get, <laughs> so I get a fair because, amount of because stuff because they're from still there. going. Yes, and I yes. was quite happy that they were still yes, going. Absolutely. Oh, I feel dirty now. <laughs> no, no, no. It's not intended to make you feel in any way dirty, but it is interesting, isn't it? There's, there is a very big, very scary article out there about the data that, that they've got, about all kinds of ways yeah. that they've got data, not just Alexa, but all sorts of other things as well. And you do wonder what they could do with it if they really wanted to. Yes, let's just ponder over that whilst we've got a, a lot of time to think about it. Yes. <laughs> Maybe don't think about it too hard. Yeah. <laughs> okay, so shall I give you my tweets because you've... Was that, yes. Is that right? Yes, you've, you've tweeted and, and blogged. So I, sh- I shall blog and tweet as well. And this one is very short to the point. It's topical, um, but blink and you'll miss it. So uh, this is for all of us who are now adjusting to a new life of working at home and... Um, meetings online conference calls and all that kind of thing it's from uh, danny berger who is from uh, bloomberg tv and it simply says this not muting your mic is the new reply all so much because I've done so much online teaching and meetings over the last two weeks that <laughs> it's just bang on the money. What's so it's the same people as well. Uh, it's a lady. It's a lady called uh, Danny Burger. Danny Burger. Danny Burger. You um, were just bang she's on. She's so right. Uh, yes, <laughs> she's so right. And and uh, not muting your mic and um, misusing the dreaded reply all button does seem to be the preserve of the same people, doesn't it? <laughs> <laughs> I can say this to them safely away from campus. It's fine. They can't find you. You are. You better hope that this uh, social distancing and isolation and restrictive measures go on for suitably long enough after this episode is aired. I suspect it'll go on for me a whole lot longer after it's gone on for everyone else now. I mean, you know, if there are any silver linings to these circumstances, and I absolutely would not want to make light of a, of a very, very dire situation at the moment, but there is going to be so much comedy gold that has been captured on the recording functions on the likes of Zoom and Teams. I mean, it's probably already starting to come out already, but crikey, some of the things you hear when people don't mute their mics. (laughs) But there There we we go. go. Not muting your mic is the new reply all. If you are that person, mute your mic. <laughs> You're gonna have to edit out all of my laughter on this. No, it's all good. <laughs> it's gotta be at least five minutes of laughter. Okay, right now, um, it's over to me now. Yes. Yep. 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 Okay, so I before we went into lockdown, I actually um, I actually had a life and was able to go outside and uh, and do some cultural things as I like to do occasionally. One day, this has got a bit of a narrative to it before I actually even read you the article. Um, I was walking to work. Gosh, back, wow. back when we were actually working in our office. I was walking to work and I was actually listening to um, Woman's Hour. And on this particular episode, there was an interview with a choreographer um, named Kathy Marston, who was talking about a piece that she had choreographed for, uh, I believe it was the Royal Ballet, um, called The Cellist. 
I got very excited um, about this because there were a lot of kind of cross-curricular links going on in this interview that I'm not going to give too many spoilers about until I've read um, the review of this piece. Um, but I actually rang, I rang you, Tom, didn't I? Did. After I'd listened to this um, as I was walking along um, and I was quite excited about it. And so I duly went to see uh, a live stream um, screening of the cellist choreographed by Kathy Marsden um, just before everything went into lockdown um, and I just thought I would read you a very lovely uh, review of it because the review itself is really nicely written and touches upon some other interesting things. Um, so this is a, a, a review by Will Gompertz um, who's arts editor uh, at the BBC. He is at Will Gompertz, BBC, if you want to follow him on Twitter. And this article is entitled The Cellist. Will Gompertz reviews the royal ballet work inspired by Jacqueline Dupree. It might sound a bit rich coming from someone no not noted for his good looks, but beauty isn't getting the respect it deserves. Not so long ago, it was all the rage. Enlightenment philosopher Immanuel Kant was pro-beauty. He considered it a form of morality. Einstein said it enticed the inner child out of us, and wise old Confucius believed everything has beauty, but not everyone sees it. Bringing it into plain sight used to be the job of artists, authors and composers wearing billowing white shirts and splendid frou-frou collars last seen on Duran Duran in the 1980s. But Pop's new romantics were no match for the relentless march of modernism with its frigid less is more dogma and strict no frills dress code. I blame Marcel Duchamp. He was the artist who proposed a urinal as a work of art back in 1917. He chose it precisely because it was, as he said, anti-retinal, an unattractive sight. It was intended as an act of destruction an enamelled exocet missile aimed at the heart of a bourgeois art establishment aligned to a political class responsible for a horrific, bloody war. It was no time for beauty, Duchamp argued. If art meant anything at all, it should speak the truth about what was happening, which was ugly and base. His toilet scored a direct hit, romanticism was dead, henceforth beauty was naff and frivolous, cynicism was the new religion for our secular age. Music became dissonant, literature became fragmented, theatre became absurd, and art turned ugly. Caught up among the collateral damage was classical narrative ballet, the most romantic of art forms. Tutus and fairies had no place in the new order. Ballet was dispatched to the art doghouse to be consumed by the people of Tunbridge Wells, or somewhere equally as uncool, where locals dress in brown tweed and mustard corduroy and consider country life a magazine, not a brand of butter. And that is where ballet remains, with some of the most beautiful choreography and music ever created written off as elitist and irrelevant. It's a shame. To see exceptionally talented dancers express emotions and story through graceful movement accompanied by a full orchestra is a sensuous experience like no other. It isn't posh or difficult or any more expensive than going to a gig or a Premier League football match. It isn't stuck in the past either. The cellist has just opened at the Royal Opera House in London. 
It is a new ballet by Cathy Marston telling the true, true story of Jacqueline Dupree, the prodigiously gifted post-war cellist whose career and life were cruelly cut short by multiple sclerosis. The tragic romantic tale of love and loss centred around a young woman in classic, class, in classic classical ballet. The difference here, though, is the subject of our heroine's affections isn't her lover and, hus and husband, the pianist and conductor Daniel Barenboim, but her instrument, the eponymous cello. Barenboim gets to play the gooseberry as he watches his wife enthusiastically pluck her instrument brought vividly to life by the Royal Ballet's newly promoted principal dancer, Marcelino Sambe. Lauren Cuthbertson takes the role of Jacqueline Dupree and, as you would expect from one of the finest dancers of her generation, gives a wonderfully nuanced and intelligent performance. The show begins with us meeting a very young Jacqueline, played by a student at White Lodge Ballet School, at home with her parents where she's having her first encounter with the instrument that would make her an international superstar by the mid-60s. Enter Cuthbertson, who stands behind Sambe, her cello and mimes, playing playing him to the sound of Elgar's cello concerto. It is beautiful. He then lifts her in pirouettes as she maintains a seated playing position, which I must admit is less beautiful and took my mind back to Duchamp and lavatories. No matter, it is one of very few awkward moments in a piece full of newly found positions which races through Dupree's life in 60 minutes. Baron Boyment is the fray, leading to a memorable pas de trois before dread looms in the form of inexplicable shake in the cellist's right leg. The transformation from a woman at the top of her game to one confronting an unknown terror is, un is undertaken with enormous skill and sensitivity by Cuthbertson, whose on-stage chemistry with Sambe transmits her love for him, her cello, with an intensity that makes the hopelessness of her situation profoundly moving. To have a talent such as hers is a blessing to have it snatched away so soon by a silent malevolent condition seems so cruel to her and us it is the tragedy of something truly marvelous being destroyed that is not a romantic condition it was a fact of life for Jacqueline Dupree a reminder that beauty should be cherished not banished it is not uncool or naff it is an idea worth believing in and striving for and appreciating that is the message of the cellist, delivered with a plum by the dancers and orchestra who, who accompany them, with a score referencing pieces by Elgar, Beethoven, Mendelssohn, Rachmaninoff and Schubert. Beautiful. And that's it. And I'm nearly uh, crying reading it. I'm such wonderful. a sap. Ah, uh, yes. <laughs> I just, I, it, is a most, it is a beautiful, beautiful piece. And it, and it taught me so many new things. I didn't know anything about Jacqueline Dupree. I hadn't heard um, Elgar um, and ju it just led to so many new um, things for me to find out about and to learn um, and yeah it's and it was it was accessible via streaming so anyone could access it so again you know making a making a wider point that you know this is for everyone it should be for everyone and should our our children be able to access this yeah, I think yes they should um, and interestingly Kathy Marston's mum has MS as well so so many layers of um, of complexity to uh, to this piece and all that kind of contextual stuff at the start of that review about the kind of um, 
you know, the the destruction of the orthodoxies of all the different arts around the first half of the 20th yeah. century. So kind of a, with our with our work hats on, I guess it's a pointer uh, towards how we can perhaps make those powerful connections across subjects that our new curriculum here in Wales is calling for, you know, how, how it can be made to work. Yeah, absolutely. And again, that's something that uh, another point that Mary Myatt makes in her book. Uh, she's got a very short chapter in that book about cross-curricular um, planning uh, in the curriculum. And she talks about kind of starting with the wider context and what was going on, you know, during the Renaissance period, let's say, or, or post-war as, um, you know, post-First World War as... as uh, as Will Gompertz talks about in his article, you know, if we start with that, then maybe we won't end up with kind of tenuous links between subjects. Yeah, and works held up as kind of, um, you know, these great works removed from their context and just sort of held up as this, this is a great piece of music, this is a great play or whatever. You know, it's so much easier to understand what's going on when you when you know what's going on elsewhere in the world, I suppose, and elsewhere in the arts. Yeah, totally totally so yeah if you if you haven't heard of Jacqueline Dupree read about her if you haven't heard Elgar listen to it and if you manage to get a chance to see the cellist uh, you won't be disappointed wonderful wonderful and I am going to bring this whole thing crashing back down to earth now <laughs> with mine <laughs> this is my role isn't it you know you are this, this is why we're friends you are perpetually the the high-minded bringer of, of wonderful things and then I just <laughs> Can I get that in writing? Crash in with some dross <laughs> from left field that just ruins the whole thing. <laughs> I have a feeling this is going to be quirky and suitably breeze. I do try. I do try. I've been sitting on this one for a while, actually. This is a, this is a story from the Times newspaper um, okay. on New Year's Eve 2019. So a little while ago. It oh. came out a little too late for our Christmas episode. Um but I've been sitting on it ever since, and it's not about education. Uh, but once I've finished reading it, I'm going to invite us all to consider the possible um, parallels that we could we could draw out uh, from the world of teaching, that very special world. So here we go. Uh, we'll put aside all thoughts of uh, fine art and general wonderfulness and listen to this. While there's a watchdog for serious cases of police misconduct... It turns out that for everyday cock-ups, officers have their own secret system of punishment, the cake fine. The payment of cakes to colleagues for incompetence on duty has become such an in-joke in the force that it has its own mock legislation known as the Cake Offences Act 2018, with strict rules matching the severity of offence with the appropriate penalty. Fines have resulted from spraying a colleague in the face with incapacitant spray, dropping the keys to a squad car in a storm drain and falling through a roof while searching a suspect's house. Getting a vehicle stuck in snow, mud or flood water constitutes an offence, as does getting locked in or out of a car or van and crashing any police vehicle including a bicycle. Losing, breaking and having equipment stolen are punishable by way of cake, as are uniform mishaps such as forgetting a hat or wearing the wrong combination of clothing. The author of the Act, which now extends to other emergency services, is an officer known as the Cake Legislator, who is consulted via social media as to whether an offence has been committed and the appropriate fine. In an email to the Times, he or she said, Each offence must be treated on its own merits. However, some of the worst offences include losing a prisoner or tasering a colleague. The highest, <laughs> <laughs> the highest official fine is homemade cake or cooked breakfast for the team. 
second highest is a Krispy Kreme tray. All in all, the whole act is flexible. Things can be increased, exceptions made, and that's where I come into my own, the cake enforcer added. The tradition does little to dispel the image of overweight police officers failing fitness tests, but the legislator adds it's all to help team morale and keep everyone going in a job that can be thankless and gruelling. Under the miscellaneous cake offences section, an officer is guilty of an offence if they have a handcuff malfunction resulting in the fire service being called. <laughs> Uh, they're also in trouble if they play any Christmas song in a police vehicle. <laughs> Sorry, I'm losing it now. They're also in trouble if they play any Christmas song in a police vehicle before December the 1st or, <laughs> or allow a... Or allow a Christmas... Oh, you yeah, try again. Oh dear. Okay. It's been a long, a long lockdown. <laughs> uh. Under the miscellaneous cake offences section, an officer is guilty of an offence if they have a handcuff malfunction, resulting in the fire service being called. They are also in trouble if they play any Christmas song in a police vehicle before December the 1st or allow a Christmas song to play in a vehicle without changing the channel. An offence aggravated if it's last Christmas by Wham. <laughs> One anonymous report claimed that a rookie officer had filed a deceased report with his own name on. <laughs> Which resulted in a cake fine with an additional penalty on the anniversary. <laughs> <laughs> of his death every year. <laughs> Another officer locked himself in the toilet of a McDonald's and was fined after staff had to rescue him. Cake fines were also called for when Hertfordshire police posted an image of a serving inspector as part of an appeal in place of a suspect wanted for assault. <laughs> Uh, one officer tweeting under the name Suburban PC described tripping over his laces while chasing a suspect. Three weeks later, I'm out of hospital with a ruptured kidney and a hefty cake fine following a kangaroo court. The National Police Chiefs Council declined to comment. <laughs> so, <laughs> with, oh, that, the end. <laughs> with that under my belt, uh, I would just like to consider for a moment and perhaps put out there on Twitter if anybody would like to contact us with their own versions of this. What would be offences uh, punishable by cake fine in the world of teaching? And I'm going to start the ball rolling by saying being that reply person. Reply all. Yes, reply all and not muting your mic. And being that person who uh, jams a photocopier and walks away. <laughs> Um, loudly and ostentatiously oh, talking shop in the staff room at break time. <laughs> Definitely. Oh God, there's too many. There I'm are. still trying to get over. <laughs> I think you'd have been cake fined oh. for your rare uh, Pinochet incident. Yeah, definitely. Yes, uh, for non-regular <laughs> listeners, the hospitalisation of a pupil uh, is is definitely grounds for a cake fine. <laughs> you surely get a cake fine as well if you um, <laughs> if you damage yourself and come back bloody when you're uh, yes, yes, about over. to start. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah. 
additional cake pine for it being your new boss's first day at work, as it was in my case, yeah. Oh, gosh. Any kind of cheesy gimmick at the start of the school year from a senior leader. I remember yep. my. I remember one of my old headmistresses, <laughs> like, starting a, a meeting with three placards that she'd written out in... in capital letters and she just she didn't say anything at the start of the meeting and she didn't call call attention she just held up these placards one by one saying it's really not that funny but just the image of it is very funny just saying let's get engaged oh i told you (laughs) a story about a hapless senior leader didn't i the other day which i can't unfortunately repeat on this podcast do you remember <laughs> yes i do <laughs> yep 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 that yes. was joyful oh okay we need so, to get yeah. back on it don't we listeners uh if you have any suggestions for offenses and the appropriate cake fine uh please do tweet us and perhaps we'll uh perhaps we'll make this a regular thing we'll we'll feature a few suggestions if we get any coming in <laughs> please send us in your ideas anonymize them you know we won't we won't, we won't disclose anything <laughs> we no. just need the comedy gold no names no pack drill but yeah loads of comedy loads of comedy well that was su- i think that was a good balance of uh of yeah. uh light light to uh to light heavy shade. yes light and, light shade, and light shade and heavy. i don't know uh, high-minded and uh, uh, <laughs> low <laughs> I, yeah, I think I've, I've I've lost all my words now after the uh, the handcuff incident. <laughs> yes. <laughs> oh, oh, we maybe need to go. do one of those disclaimers again on the on the front of this episode. But there yes, we are. Yeah. <laughs> Listeners in lockdown, we hope that's given you something to chuckle yes. over. Yes, uh, I'll I'll be editing some hysteria out of uh, what's been before, but some some will remain in undoubtedly. Undoubtedly, and hopefully that will give you a smile too. <laughs> yeah, so we're going to be back. Uh, our next episode is one, oh, it's going to be sad for us. It's, it's recorded long before lockdown was uh, a glint in the eye of anybody in power. It's uh, from the Research Ed Cymru event, which took place oh, about 50 billion wow. years ago. It did, and that, that's a good one as well. So do tune yes. in for that one. Lots of really great um, guest interviews, very short, punchy guest interviews, because basically Tom doorstepped them all um, in, in true journo fashion, and, uh, and he got some absolute gems. So do have a listen to that. Yes, and in the meantime, I'm going to uh, get out of my car studio and warm myself up. <laughs> <laughs> and uh, yes i hope you've enjoyed it and uh, we'll be back with something approaching our normal service and a, and a nostalgic look back at when we could all leave the house more than once a day <laughs> certainly and stay safe and well everybody yes take care and we'll be back soon that was emma and tom's pgc podcast presented by emma thayer and tom breeze This light holiday episode was brought to you in association with The Guardian, The Times, The BBC, Twitter and the blog of Roger Higgins, director of Norwich Research School. If you have any ideas for educational offences and the cake fines that should be levied, please tweet us at Thomas Breeze. (laughs) (laughs) Sorry. If you have any ideas for educational offences, I can't, Tom, I can't do it. (laughs) okay shall i have that one
have that one. And you have the next one. I'll do the next one. Okay. If you have any ideas for educational offences and the cake fines that should be levied, please tweet us at Thomas Breeze or at Ethea underscore CMU. We hope you enjoyed our light episode as much as we enjoyed recording it. Take care of yourselves and we'll be back in a fortnight. <laughs> Top job. <laughs> <laughs> you got comedy gold in there. I'm so sorry. It's going to be a difficult classic. one to edit. It's going to be fine. Brilliant. It's going to be fine. That Not like I'm so short of time. Fun. Ah. <laughs>